I believe that uh, when we walk in intimacy with the Lord, our whole life changes. Your past, your present, your addictions, your struggles, the things that people have done to you, the way people have abandoned you or labeled you, the things that you have partnered with in your heart and mind, I don't care what they are. Only He has the authority to tell you who you are. We have to ask Holy Spirit to download His heart to our heart. We have to be people who raise their hands and say, I'm here, this is my city, this is my region, it's not somebody else's problem. So we've been doing a series called Contextual Revolution, and um, it is basically taking passages of Scripture that may be very familiar to us, and we're looking at them, and we're, we're trying our best to put them into context and to learn and see if maybe they don't mean exactly what we think that they mean as we study them and as we look at them deeper. And, and last week we started in Matthew 24 because I thought it would be fun, Matthew 24, yay, let's do it. And um, I didn't get nearly as far as I thought I would, so I'm try- I, I actually finished the, well, I didn't finish the whole, the whole book, but I mean the whole chapter, but I finished what I felt like I was supposed to finish last service. So I have to get through it this service as well, otherwise we'll be off cadence. So um, someone texted me after service and said there's a, there's a fine line between a long sermon and a hostage situation, I think was the... <laughs> was, the was the text that I got. So uh, at least you know in advance, and if you need to get away, this is your opportunity. But I can see you <laughs> as you leave. I might Facebook live it, just... No, I, I would never do that. Um, how, many of you, how many of you were here last week? We talked about the backfire effect. We kind of, good, okay. So for those of you who weren't here, I, I talked a little bit about what is called the backfire effect. And the backfire effect is simply this, that we have core beliefs in our lives that are confirmed through life experiences and through teaching. And those core beliefs become so valuable to us that when someone offers us a fact that is contrary or different than our core belief, it feels the same as if someone were physically attacking you. So it triggers inside all of us this, this fight or flight mentality. I'm gonna, you're, you're wrong, I'm right. We're gonna fight or I'm gonna run away and I don't like your facts. I, don't, I, I, I disagree completely and I want out of this relationship entirely. And this is the responses that can happen sometimes when, we, when something that is a core belief gets what we feel like is under attack. Now, I wanna start again with that same concept and tell you that your, your core beliefs are not under attack today on Matthew 24 or on the end times or on the tribulation or on the mark of the beast or on um, the millennium or on any of that, the rapture, did I say the rapture? On, it's, you're, not, it's not, you're not under attack on any of those things. I may challenge you, I may challenge your core belief, but if we go into this agreeing that no one is under attack, you don't have to feel defensive. And uh, I, I grew up, the reason that I believe that this can be a little bit hard is that I grew up what is called a futurist. I was taught deeply from a futurist viewpoint. And for the last 130 years, 140 years maybe within church history, futurism, when it comes to the end times and when it comes to Matthew 24, has been the prevailing belief in most churches. So those of us who have studied Revelation, those of us who have studied Matthew 24, eschatology, we're taught from a futurist viewpoint, which says that everything in Matthew 24, for the most part, is in the future yet to happen. Everything in Revelation after Revelation chapter 4 is also in the future yet 
to happen. That's fine. There is great teaching um, from the futurist viewpoint. There is amazing books, amazing pastors, amazing leaders that hold this viewpoint, and, and I am okay with that. Um, the reason that I'm passionate about it is when I was 13 years old, I read, a, I read a book called Last Day's Madness, and it taught me a different perspective, and I've kind of been for my life both futurist and, and, and from the perspective of what I'm going to teach you today and just kind of balance it out and walk it out. And what I, what I think it made for me was that it kept me from getting so entrenched in one or the other that there is this ability to sort of hold with an open hand and to not be ready to fight everybody that comes along that disagrees with you or disagrees with me. And so it, it has allowed me from the time that I'm 13, was 13 years old reading this book with a different perspective. Um, I think it's, God did that for a reason, and I would like us to also kind of step into that same attitude and that same heart of learning something that may be completely different than what you're used to hearing, but not feeling like you have to believe exactly as the guy on the stage believes or that you are out of here. We want, a, we want to be a people who gather around relationship, around the presence of God, around the heart of family, not just around doctrine. But don't hear me say that I don't love doctrine or theology. Uh, I, I, I absolutely do, but I'm not going to form it into a knife and jab you with it while I run you out of the church if you don't agree with me on every single scripture that I teach. And so I want us to be a place where it's safe to, to learn and to appreciate what it looks like to say, oh, you know what? The, the teaching team is not here to teach me what to think. They are here to challenge me so that I learn to think for myself. And that's what we want is people to do that. So, um, so now that you're all excited about that, <laughs> um, let's look again at Matthew 24. And um, my, I propose today, the question that I kind of want to ask is what if the events in Matthew 24, when they're placed within their proper scriptural and historical context, what if these events in Matthew 24 speak of a tribulation and a judgment and of events that have already been fulfilled? And so, what if everything in Matthew 24, the warnings that Jesus gave us and all of the things, are happening throughout the New Testament and afterwards, and we simply have to connect the dots to see it. And, and so I believe that a strong contextual case can be made that if we view this, that what Jesus is actually saying, where we left off last week, is that Jesus was saying that once the gospel is preached into the, the, the inhabited world, that this would be the beginning signs of his coming, returning, not to rapture the church, but his coming in judgment that he was talking about to his disciples in Matthew 24 and, and pouring out what he was talking about in Matthew 20, 22 and 23. So before we jump into that, I want to give you a little bit of history so that you understand historically uh, where I'm coming from and why I, I, why I will teach this to you today for your consideration. Um, after Jesus left the earth, um, the Jewish people in Jerusalem was under the control, continued to be under the control of the Roman government, and there was tension that began to form. I talked to you about the, the time of peace where there was no wars, where the Roman Empire had basically quelled all resistance for a, for a time. And, and after that time began to run out, people started to revolt again against the Romans. And Jerusalem was one of those places where people began to revolt. There was teaching in Jerusalem that said, if we don't revolt against the Romans, then they are going to put us into slavery, much like happened to us in 
Egypt. And so there were men who were leading factions who were teaching this. They, got, they, they even got the, the, the leaders of the temple to deny the, the Romans any opportunity to give sacrifices, and they weren't praying for any foreigners. So they changed the rules specifically to stick it in the eye of the Romans and say, you don't, get to, you don't get to do this. We're going we're gonna to stand up to you, and we're not going to uh, receive your sacrifices, and we are not going to pray for you. And so this began a, a extremely serious years of dissension and revolt and rebellion that was beginning to rise up, and it was called the Great Jewish Revolt or the Jewish Revolt. And you're welcome to look that up historically and study that for yourself. Um, so what happened as tension grew was there was uh, Nero sent in, Cestius Gallus was his, name, <clears throat> was his name, and his job was to put down this uprising. And so he went all the way through the region, he killed thousands of people, and he made it all the way into Jerusalem. He surrounded Jerusalem for four days. After four days, he made it all the way into Jerusalem, and he burned three of the, three of the four main districts within Jerusalem. And he was there and had an opportunity to put down this Jewish revolt. And instead of putting down this Jewish re- revolt, history says that he suddenly withdrew all of his men and headed back the way he came. And as he headed back the way he came, the, the Jewish rebellion was able to attack him and kill 6,000 of his men. So he had this, this opportunity to win great victory for the Romans, and it turned into defeat. And, so he, um, and then Nero got word of this defeat that he had suffered, and he, <clears throat> he began to form a plan to follow up on this attack. So this allowed this moment of Moving in and then leaving made two things happen. One, Christians who were paying attention to the signs of the times that we talked about last week were able to say, oh, this is not a good sign. We are now leaving, and they began to leave Jerusalem, and they headed out to another region in the foothills of Jordan. The other unfortunate thing that it did is that it gave the Jewish revolt and rebellion a ton of confidence that they were like, well, God is clearly with us because this person, this army didn't have to turn back, and yet miraculously they have turned about and gone away from us, and so it put more fire into their rebellion, causing them to do more dumb things. That's how I sum up a lot of history. So they did a lot of dumb things for, for years. Okay, and so that was in 66 AD. Did I mention that, 66 AD? So... Um, so then uh, Nero appointed Vespasian, and he led a war against the Jews, and he was assisted by his son Titus, and they built an army of 60,000 men. And in the spring of A.D. 67, he marched again, the Romans marched again into Judea, and they got as far as Jericho, and then Nero passed away. And so he wasn't sure if the next emperor was going to want him to continue his fight against Jerusalem or not, and so he left also for two years. This allowed people who were paying attention to the signs of the time to continue to get away, and it also said to the Jewish revolt, we are doing something right. Let's continue to make a mess of everything that's going on around us and continue to do dumb things. And so for two years, this this gave them an opportunity to not have the Roman army breathing down their neck, and so they continued to, to expand their rebellion out. And so they fought and killed, and inside of Jerusalem, two factions began to form, and these two factions began to fight one another and kill one another and kill people in the, that wouldn't come to their side. They began to burn storehouses of food, famine, 
and sickness and burning and killing were rampant, were beginning to grow rampant within Jerusalem itself, not because of the Roman armies, but because of the factions that were inside Jerusalem. Then there was a third faction of rebellion outside of Jerusalem with 40,000 men. And they traveled around outside, burning cities, stealing stuff, and they decided that they wanted to be inside Jerusalem as well. This is during the two years, from 67 AD to 16, or 80, 67 to 80, 69. So they fought their way also into Jerusalem. So now there was three factions inside Jerusalem, killing one another, burning storehouses, fighting all the time. Uh, famine and sickness is rampant, and the whole inside of Jerusalem is in complete turmoil. Death, destruction, decay is happening in Jerusalem. And so at the worst of this moment, this is when they got word that Titus now had returned with the armies and was going to camp around Jerusalem. And that was in A.D. 69 leading into A.D. 70. And that brings us up to, um, to give us a little bit of background information as we begin to look at this second part of Matthew 24. So where I want to pick up is I want to pick up in Matthew 24, verse 15 today. That's where we left off last week, okay? So does that history help you guys? I'm, I shouldn't ask you because we're not like in a room where you can answer me individually, but hopefully that history helps you, give you a little bit of a context to what's going on around this time. So, 24:15. so when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel... Luke 21.20, just to make a note, we're going to use a lot of Luke 21 as a parallel passage this morning. When you see, this is how he says it in Luke 21, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. So why would they, what is the abomination that causes desolation? When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. Armies. That's what we learn when we study it within context is you can look and go, what is this abomination that causes the desolation? It is the armies that are surrounding Jerusalem. Why is it an abomination? They equated this as a holy war and the symbols of the eagles and the other gods and the emperors that the Romans held on their flags and on their shields and on their breastplates. They saw these as idols. What is an abomination before God? If you understand the Old Testament, especially going back pre-Babylon destruction, the abomination is idol worship, even to the point where during the time of peace, the Jewish people would ask the Roman governors of the time not to march their armies through Judea at all because of the abomination of what is on their flags, what is on their breastplates, what is on their shields, the pictures of the eagles mainly, the pictures of the emperors and other gods that they worshipped. These were idol worship to them, and it was an abomination for them. So to see the flags of the Roman army making its way into the center of Jerusalem, into the temple courts, this is an abomination. It is an abomination and it is foreshadowing the desolation that is going to take place that we see in Matthew 24, 15 and that we see in Luke 21, 20. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you know that its desolation is near. Luke 21, 21, let not them that are in the countries enter into Jerusalem. When you see this taking place, don't run to Jerusalem. What, is the, what are people's response 
when they see armies coming through the hillsides and the countryside, it is to run to the most fortified city in your region, which would have been Jerusalem by far. But Jesus was saying to them, when you see the, this abomination that's going to cause the, 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 the destruction of Jerusalem, don't that which is the army surrounding it, it says in Luke 21, 20. It's the army surrounding it. When you see this taking place, do not run to Jerusalem for safety. Go the other way. And so that's what Jesus was telling them to do. Um, then, <clears throat> also, this is just an interesting side fact. The day that Titus came and encamped around Jerusalem was, the, was during the feast of the Passover. And this would have also been important because all of the nation around it was, would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. So people were heading from all of the regions around to go into Jerusalem. All the tribes of Israel would have been represented. All the people would have been collected into, into Jerusalem. And Jesus was saying, when you see this taking place, go the other way. Okay? Then let's, that brings us to Matthew 24, 16 through 20. We'll, we'll take off a chunk here, give you hope for an ending. Uh, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. When you see the armies circled around Jerusalem, we, we see that in context. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. What about people who are in Medford? We don't get any instructions. Why? Because this isn't for us. It's not written to the people in Medford. This is specifically written to a, t- a people in a specific time and a specific place facing a very specific event. Then let those who are in Judea, and Jesus was giving them direct instructions, Judea, flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. This is pretty straightforward, but if you understand the turmoil that's going on within Jerusalem, you understand the amount of people that are coming into Jerusalem, and you understand some of the things that are also going on, even with the Sabbath, is that during the Sabbath you could only walk like 15 or 20 steps at a time, and then you had to stop for a couple hours, so it wouldn't make any sense to try to flee. Let's go down to the streets and run on the Sabbath because the temple guards who, would, who, were, who were actually watching to make sure, could you believe it? Like watching to make sure that people wouldn't take more than 20 steps at a time in case they got caught working on the Sabbath. They would arrest you. And so Jesus is saying, hey, look, you, your whole life already is on rooftops. If we understand the region and the area, just run across the rooftops. Get out of the city. Don't go, no, no, no. Don't go down and get your stuff. Don't slow down for anything. Down there is turmoil, death, famine, mess, get your stuff, or leave your stuff, and go, and, and run for the hills, and that's what they were doing as they were watching this take place. One last interesting historical tidbit, when Titus first arrived and encamped around, around Jerusalem, he tried to come through the main gates, and, and for the first time, the three factions actually fought together this one day. They decided to fight together, and as they fought together, they were able to push back the Roman army and hold them off for like a 24-hour period. They were able to push them back in that one circumstance, which again would have done two things. Given the people who are watching and paying attention that last opportunity to run, no matter what, to get out of there, it also would have given them crazy confidence to continue to do dumb things. Um, Matthew 24, 21. Did it die on us? Oh, it didn't. Okay. Um, For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never 
to be equaled again. So Jesus pointed out that this tribulation and this judgment that he's prophesying would be the worst that had ever happened and the worst that ever would happen. Think with me through this. That is interesting, right? He is implying that time would continue after this event, not that this event would be the end of time. Context matters. This statement makes no sense if this is about the end of the world. He just put the events of Matthew 24 in the middle of the timeline. Jesus says now and never again. He drops it right in the middle and he brings it into the now in this event. Um, there's no, also just as a side note, we're not going to argue about this, but in, in my understanding and study of scripture, there is no dual fulfillment of prophecy. Usually when we're talking about dual fulfillment of prophecy, this is going to sound really mean. I'm not trying to be mean, but usually when you're talking about dual fulfillment of prophecy, somebody got the first one wrong. And so they're just like, let me try again. Um, so, and, I'm, and I'm joking, but really in Scripture, there's no place where you can point out substantially and say this contextually is a place where this prophecy was fulfilled two times in two different ways. It just doesn't happen like that. It's wishful thinking. Um, and two, he says never to be equaled again. So this speaks to a single event, not, a, not two events. It's never... See that within context? Okay. Luke 21, 22. For this is a time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. Um, this is the day of vengeance is what that, is what that he's alluding to. Isaiah 60 where he, um, I, I should have looked this up between. I always say this, Isaiah 60. He gets the scroll at the beginning of his, uh, of his ministry and he says, bring me the scroll. And he reads it and he said, this is the day of the Lord's favor. And, and I, I've come to set captives free and give sight to the blind and do all these things. This is what he's declaring himself. And the, the verse that he skips and he stops is, and, and to declare the, the day of vengeance. He leaves that out, but he brings it back in in Luke 21 at the end of his ministry. And he says, this is the, this is the time for the punishment or the day of vengeance in fulfillment of all that has been written. This actually happens on the ninth of Av. Ninth of A-V is the word. You're going to have to do this research on your own. Ninth of Av. It is when the Babylonians destroyed the original temple is on the same date that the Romans destroyed the temple and Jerusalem. It's a, it's a fairly interesting historical tidbit that should go, oh, the day of vengeance. They call the ninth of Av the day of vengeance, and this is what Jesus was declaring. So, but is this really the worst thing that's ever happened? People genuinely ask that question, and I get it because we've seen worst things happen numerically sometimes. But here's what I would say. It was the worst thing for the Jews. It was the worst thing for the temple. It was the worst thing for Jerusalem because it was completely destroyed. The entire Mosaic covenant was destroyed, which was the center of the Jewish world. They went from having a nation, a city, a temple system, a sacrificial system, and genealogies, and to nothing at all. They couldn't even track who would be the priests because they lost all the genealogies in the fire. So even if they wanted to afterwards to go, well, we can go back to the Old Testament way or the Old Covenant ways, and we can do sacrifices again, and we can rebuild the temple. They had no genealogies, and 8,500 all 8,500 of the priests were put to death in this, in this terrible moment. And so there was no way for them to even pick that back up again. So there's no priesthood, no sacrifices, no more feasts. This is the center of their world. This is their moon. This is their stars. This is everything to them. And it's all fallen apart. So 
is, it is historical fact. I'll just share this with you. In 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. That 1.1 million Jews within, inside the city were killed. Another 260,000 were believed to have perished outside of the city due to, to, to attacks and, and famine and sickness. 8,500 priests were put to death. The genealogical records were completely burned. The temple was burned, and then it was torn apart stone by stone. Why? Because as they burnt it, the gold coating, the decorative gold coating was melting in between the stones, and the Romans wanted to take it, so they tore apart the temple so that they could get to the gold, even to the point that there is historical, documented stories of them getting plowshares and tearing apart the temple foundations to make sure that they didn't leave anything behind. This is what truly took place and this is historical what we what we what we learn from this or what we believe from this is up to you but i'm telling you historical fact that you, facts that you can research yourself matthew 24 24 if those days had not been 24 22 if those days had not been cut short no one would survive but for the sake of the elect those days will be shortened did this actually happen yes if those days hadn't been cut short nobody would have survived the destruction of jerusalem would have continued outside of jerusalem into the places where other people were hiding specifically into the place where the christians the elect were hiding they would have been utterly destroyed but at some point for whatever reason the romans stopped and they took ninety-three thousand captives to serve in slave labor, to serve in camps, to whatever it might be, but they, 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 the destruction came to a point where they said, it's time to stop. They took their captives and they left, which meant the fulfillment of this passage that Jesus was saying is that if these days hadn't been cut short for the sake of the elect, everybody would have been killed. So, and then you have this account of Eusebius. You can also look this up. Uh, this is a Greek historian of Christianity. He says that not one Christian, and other, other historical documents can back this up, uh, not one Christian died in the destruction of Jerusalem because they all went to Pella. When they had these opportunities and they watched the signs of the time, they all escaped the city and were able to establish a place for them to live somewhere else, and they rode out this storm in the, on the mountain. So, if the days of destruction wouldn't have been cut short, they would have eventually been found, they would have eventually been killed, and they would not have been um, saved. So Matthew 24, 23 through 26. Um, at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. Verse 24, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone, verse 26, if anyone tells you there he is out in the wilderness, do not go, or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Um, this is a continuation of Jesus's earlier teaching. I, I talked about the different places last week, but there's a, there's a story in um, there's a nail sticking out of there. Um, there there's a there's a there's a reason why we wear shoes in public. Uh, go figure. Um, there's a story of, of, peop, of, a, of a guy who actually rallied people to himself and said, I have a message from God, come and follow me. He told me that if we all rally at the temple, that he's going to do a miracle and he's going to deliver us. And he actually uh, persuaded thousands and thousands of people to go and to meet up with him at the temple at the time that the Romans were coming into the city and destroying the city. And they ended up caught and trapped and butchered in that temple. And in the temple, of course, to the point where blood was flowing out over the stairs and down into the streets because they followed somebody who said, I have a word from God. I am, I, I, I have a, I'm going to show you signs and wonders and God is going to deliver us. And they believed it and they followed him. But what Jesus is saying is no matter what you hear, stay far away 
from the city. And you will, if you persevere, if you stay far away, if you don't let up, you don't relent, you will be saved. And this is what was truly taking place. Matthew 24, 27. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. It's visible to everybody like lightning in the sky. A destruction from God uh, is coming on Jerusalem. He's saying to them that this will not be a surprise to you. If you see a storm coming, you can watch and go, there's a thunderstorm, I see lightning, you're able to prepare for it. Jesus is telling them and encouraging them, you're going to be able to tell that this is coming. Yes, it's going to come fast, but you're going to be able to tell. And that's his continual encouragement to say, you can pay attention to what is happening. Um, It wouldn't be a surprise, just as you can see a storm coming, and and, uh, but... It was a powerful move of God, no doubt, in a way that Titus even is documented by Josephus as saying, this surely is the hand of their God against them. He was so floored by what he saw and the destruction that was inside Jerusalem when he showed up to take over Jerusalem that he was, he was uh, completely devastated by it and said, surely this is, this is God against them. Matthew 24, 28, wherever there is a carcass, there are eagles or vultures, depending on what... Um, There the vultures or eagles will gather, depending on what translation you have. Um, It doesn't really matter. It's not the point whether it's an eagle or a vulture. It's what kind of bird it is. It's a type of bird that preys on on death and preys on dead carcasses. We're not trying to draw symbolism necessarily from this word and and play funny games with it. But um, this this is truly... Jesus saying that, that when, when you find, when the Romans find you, when they come, there's going to be death everywhere. And this is the state that Jerusalem was in. They were basically a dead carcass ready for destruction. And the vultures, the Roman army, the eagles, if, if Jesus was alluding to the, to the, to the eagles that were on their, their chests or on their swords, that's, that's fine. But the point is, Israel was a carcass. Israel was ripe for destruction. There was no way that they could stand up to this outpouring this tribulation that had come up on them. Uh, Matthew 24, 29, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. This is, again, the way that they would prophesy judgment in that time. His hearers would have recognized this, of saying this is, this is a prophecy of judgment. The Old Testament has multiple examples of cities receiving prophecies just like this, of their destruction using terms related to heavenly heavenly bodies Egypt Ezekiel 37, 32 7 and 8 Edom Isaiah 34 4 Babylon Isaiah 13:10 Amos 8:9 Babylon coming to destroy Israel Habakkuk 3 um, people the people of Israel called stars in Genesis 22 Genesis 26 Deuteronomy 1:10 we could go on and on and on I just want you to understand that within the biblical context there is overwhelming proof that, that when we talk about the destruction, the foretelling of the destruction of a city like this is often compared to stars and sun and moon falling from the sky and that it's, it's, a, it's a representation of a civil government or a city that is being completely destroyed. It is being, it's being thrown down. Sorry, I keep cutting out. I will try not to turn around so much. Um, uh, Matthew 24, 29, Jesus' listeners would have known he was speaking in the Old Testament symbolism about the destruction of Jerusalem, not the end of the world. Joseph had a similar dream. The sun, the moon, the stars were bowing down to him. We understood that to mean that the leaders of Egypt and his brothers and his parents were going to bow down to him. We didn't think that the sun and the moon and the stars were actually going to bow down to Joseph, right? 
We didn't think that meant the end of the world, right? We just understood that this is, this is drawing these comparisons. And using that kind of words is talking about structure and civil government. Matthew uh, 24, 30. Moving along. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the people of the earth, literally translated in your scripture, probably has this, either in, the, in it or noted below. The, the actual translation for that word is tribes of the land. They will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. We have to again recognize that this does not refer to a global event where it says earth, the root word is gi, which means land, as in the land of Israel. Uh, This passage doesn't use the word cosmos, which would have been the entire planet. Um, The translations, a lot of your translations actually say tribes of the land, and it makes sense that the tribes of Israel gathered for the Passover would, 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 would see this destruction that is imminent, and they would mourn when they see Jesus, the Son of Man, coming. But what does that mean for him to be coming? The, f- the phrase coming on the clouds of heaven, it was, again, common Old Testament symbolism that God is coming in judgment upon ancient historical people and nations. The people who were listening to Jesus would have understood, that, would have understood this. I'll give you some quick verses that you can look, look up later. Psalm 18.7, Psalm 104.3, Isaiah 19.1, Joel 2.1, Zephaniah 1.4 and and 15. So we have to to know that when Jesus is talking about the coming of the Son of Man, they would have heard a coming of judgment, not a coming rapture. That's what they would have have heard, a coming judgment. Uh, Matthew 24, let's see, oh, oh, sign of the Son of Man in heaven. So uh, this is another historical tidbit that I think is super interesting. Josephus writes about a a sword-shaped comet that, it, that hung in the sky for a year before 70 A.D. And so the sign of the Son of Man, it might have been, he might have been referring to this actual celestial event that Josephus records um, above it. You can look that up yourself. Interesting thing. Matthew 24, 31. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. So Jesus announces that basically that the result of Jerusalem's destruction will be Christ sending forth his angels to gather the elect. So isn't this talking about the rapture? Finally, yay, we got to the rapture. No. Um, so the word angel simply means messengers. You can look that up, James 2.25. So regardless of whether the origin of these messengers are heavenly or if they're actually earthly messengers that are being sent out, which would have been the early early church. The context here determines that whether uh, these, these, these heavenly creatures that are being spoken of, the word means preachers of the gospel. Matthew 11.10, Luke 7.24, 9.52, Revelation 1-3. through 3. In this context, what he is sending out are messengers of the gospel, preachers of the kingdom. So in context, there is every reason to assume that Jesus is speaking of a worldwide evangelism outbreak and conversion of the nations, which has, in fact, followed upon this destruction of, of Jerusalem. And so you're talking about a proclamation. The trumpet blowing isn't about this signal that's saying now everybody's getting raptured. The trumpet blowing is actually a declaration of a king on a throne and messengers being sent out. And so we see from the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, we see worldwide evangelism exploding across the face of the earth, which is why he didn't use a localized term like tribes of, the, of, the, of Israel. He actually used symbolism to say the four corners of the earth, which means the whole world. By using this metaphor Jesus is saying is telling us that the elect will be gathered from everywhere 
in the world. It is no longer just the Israelites. It is no longer the old covenant. It is a new covenant and that this proclamation, the king on the throne, the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to go out to the four corners, to the four winds of the earth and he is going to gather in his elect at that time and from that time. And we are, we are very possibly, I, I, I would submit to you that we are very possibly living in and a part of that time. But the word gather, doesn't it also refer to the rapture, you might ask? Um, when we look at it within context elsewhere in the new testament gathering is always is reference to the unification of jews and gentiles and it's also referring to evangelism the gathering of god's people both jews and gentiles into his kingdom so this is where the the message is turning into a hostage situation i get it um <laughs> matthew 24 32 through 33. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. Jesus is saying the exact same thing that he said over and over and over throughout this passage. It's going to be like a storm. It's going to be like lightning. It's going to be like a fig tree beginning to bloom. If you're paying attention, you're going to see the signs extremely well and you will know it is your opportunity to flee. If you will persevere until the end if you will make it to the end of this prophesied situation that i'm giving you you will be saved but pay attention to the signs and what is going on around you just like you would pay attention to a fig tree as it begins to blossom um it's uh okay so matthew 24 34 it truly i tell you this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened to the Jewish people, a generation was 40 years. We see this in the fact that the generation died in the wilderness during the 40-year journey in Deuteronomy 29. What Jesus is actually prophesying is that the people within 40 years, if he is prophesying what we believe that he's prophesying, if this is what the early church believed about what Jesus said, that if he said this in 30, a generation is 40 years, which lands us on 70 AD. It would have to be fulfilled within that generation is what they would have heard. 40 years is a generation that this coming judgment, this tribulation that you're talking to us about would have to be fulfilled by 70 A.D. Otherwise, he is incorrect. We can't play games with this word. We can't turn it into the word race. Uh, there's not one reference in all of Scripture where this word generation is turned to race. Some people have made it the, the, the race of Israel or whatever it is. You, scriptural context being our guide and staying within what Scripture teaches us. There's nowhere that that word is changed correctly to mean anything other than 40 years, a generation, people who are alive at that very time. And that's just how we have to stay within Scripture. Then we have to grapple with it in that place. We don't get to say, I don't like this, so I'm going to change its meaning. We have to grapple with Scripture in context. And, and we, want to be, we want to be literalists. Not the literalists who like read the Bible and go, this is what it means to me, therefore that's what it, literally that's what it means. No, to actually dig in until we get the literal meaning, and then we have to grapple with that and this is one of those places where we can't change this word jesus said this would happen within a generation 40 years it either did happen or jesus is a liar and i contend that for whatever we want to be believe about about everything else in matthew 24 and revelation if nothing else we can look at this verse and say historically this did happen what if we take jesus's words literally did this already happen 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. 1.1 million Jews were killed. 8,500 priests were put to death. The genealogy, genealogical records were burned. The temple was burned and then torn apart stone by stone, and not one Christian died. All of this was recorded by Josephus, the historian 
Um, so can we consider just to, to wrestle with what the early church believed and, and what the early church accepted as truth today? And I will, I will let you out of this. I won't, I won't hold you for a ransom. Um, I'd take a second offering as I would. If it's a hostage situation, I'll just... <laughs> ransom, second offering, yeah. Um, if we hit this amount, you can go home. So the early church would have, whatever we believe, and I give you full permission about, about the end times and about, uh, about Matthew 24 revelation, you, you believe and contend for what you believe and you're not being thrown away and you're not being attacked. And I value those that teach futurism and understand it. And, um, but, but what the early church accepted as truth was this. In Matthew 24, Jesus prophesied the great tribulation, which happened in AD 70 during the destruction of Jerusalem. They accepted that the events of AD 70 happened within the time frame that Jesus gave, a generation or 40 years. Jesus gave them eight signs that would precede the great Great Tribulation, and all of them were fulfilled prior to AD 70, allowing the early Christians, the elect, to persevere to the end and were saved from destruction. And they believed and understood that there was no future Great Tribulation ahead of them. Jesus said nothing so terrible had ever happened before or would ever happen again. They believed this. They wrestled with this. And if we believe that, we can begin to look around and say, is it possible that we aren't living in the end times because everything is coming to destruction, but we are actually living in the end times because Jesus is coming for his bride, whole and healthy and one, his church, strong and powerful, not a broken down world that he has to come and kill and destroy because that has already taken place. Can we believe that we are a part of going to the four corners of the earth and gathering in the elect and gathering in those that would come to know Jesus. Can we believe that we're part of a kingdom that has been uh, serving a king that has been sent out? And can we maybe possibly please consider believing that things are not in fact getting worse and we don't have to look at every story and every newspaper article and everything on the internet and believe that division is what's supposed to be taking place so we're like oh yeah division it's part of the end times oh yeah this is supposed to be taking place it's part of the end times it's everything's supposed to get worse if we believe that church we tie our hands and we're not able to do the very things that we are positioned here to do to be salt and light and to make a difference if we if we believe if we believe that we are commissioned as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, then we go out in his power and his glory. And when we see division, we say, you know what? Should be, there should be reconciliation where there's division. There should be health where there's brokenness. There should be hope where there's, where there's fear. We should, have, we should be bringing heaven's solution, not going, oh, well, that's just a sign of the times. Because a sign of the times is an excuse for me to step back and let whatever's going to happen happen. If that's not actually true, this stuff has taken place and we're in a different era and a different place. We're going to feel really silly. When Jesus comes back, and he's not coming back to instigate a tribulation and, and all the other stuff, but he's actually coming to a party to receive his bride and to, to love well and to, to receive us. And so, and, and so anyway, that's what I would just simply put out there for you to consider and to wrestle with and to have some fun with. You can research it all yourself. I'll even help you research it if you want the counter arguments. I'll give those to you too. I have them all. Um, so. Love you guys. Thank you for being my hostages. I appreciate it. Have an amazing Sunday. We love you.